Right, so a very warm welcome to everyone joining um, the second episode. I just had to think there for a moment. The second episode of Series 3 of the Inspire Series. As you can see, we've got Maris de la Rey lined up to give you a welcome. Stafford's ready in his gym to answer the questions. And we've got some background music playing, which I'm not going to say too much about. If you can work out why I played this from one of the questions I'm going to ask Stafford at some point during this call, then uh, top marks, no gift, just top marks. Most importantly, this isn't just me asking questions. Share your questions, please. And if you can put them in the QA function, that's even better because they're a lot easier to pick up than when you just go through the general chat. So with that, I'm going to hand over to Marius to kick us off. Yeah, thanks, Colin. Uh, welcome, Stafford. Uh, great to have a lot of people joining. I see uh, uh, the membership is climbing as we go along. So as Colin said, my name is Marius Delaray. Um, excuse me, I look after the services business at IOCO. Um, it's really great to be on this Inspire series with all of you uh, and a lot of our clients. Uh, really great to see how many clients are here. This is the second series. Last week, um, we had uh, the privilege of talking to Rob Paddock uh, from Get Smarter. Um, I think the only thing we were very impressed with was how direct Colin was in asking how much money he sold the business for. Uh, and there were lots of people that were WhatsApping about $103 million. Um, it was incredible. But I think what was more important uh, last week was around the purpose behind which they built that business. The passion was uh, palpable. Um, if you want to attract the best talent and a younger audience, purpose needs to be lived in the experience and shown in the work that you're actually doing. I think, um, you know, the reality behind it is they worried every single day about their purpose and made sure that that was the mission that they were on. Eventually, I think uh, Colin will correct me if I'm wrong, but I think they had like a thousand people helping educate uh, a global uh, audience. So I think that was really fantastic. If you did miss last week, uh, don't don't worry because we have them all on our website at ayoko.tech. Um, today, really exciting. Colin's going to uh, talk to, to Stafford Macy. Um, stay tuned. It's about the unicorns. It's about purpose. It's about disruption. Uh, as Colin did mention, please don't forget to put your questions in. We really, we really need them as feedback. Uh, it also helps us facilitate the questions to understand what it is that you'd like to know. Colin does a fantastic job. He's from Innovation Catalyst, and I'll hand over him to introduce Stafford this week. Enjoy. Thank you very much, Maurice. And uh, we'll chat to you at the end in the uh, last five minutes, and you uh, you pose the questions. So, very warm welcome, uh, Stafford. I'll just do a very quick intro if I can, but I think most people dialing in probably know you. You're, in my opinion, one of the most well known um, influencers, entrepreneurs, and business leaders from South Africa. It's a it's a career a bit like a jackrabbit. You've done so many things. You've worked in the United States. You've studied in Israel. Um, you've been with Telcom. You've been with WeWork. You've been an incredibly successful serial entrepreneur setting things like Thumbs Up and the uh, the payment pebble device that's gone and run with it. Uh, you've sat on boards, AdTech, for example, which people probably know most from schools like Crawford. So very warm welcome to the call. How do you get so much energy? I just, uh, it, it's, it's amazing. I like what Steve Jobs says. You can never connect the dots forward. You can only connect the dots backwards. And the only way, everyone stops with that quote right there. And I love the rest of that quote. And he says, the only way the dots connect is when whatever you're doing is what you love. And I've been lucky in my career. Um, you know, in the early 90s, coming back from Israel, the internet didn't even have a graphical user interface yet. I worked at Telcom uh, and I worked with incredible people. And from there, you know, landed up uh, with uh, Dimension Data. And that was the early beginnings of Dimension Data when they used to sell toasters with Cisco symbols on them. And everyone was putting in wide area networks for the first time. In fact, it was the first time people were putting local area networks in. And I saw the, the local area network boom go through the, through the roof. And then after that, I had my own startup. And my first one was a bunch of software engineers. After that, the Novell came along, acquired that, became Novell Consulting Services. Uh, landed up going to the United States, lived there for seven and a half years um, with Novell, came back and uh, yeah, then started Google in South Africa, established their presence in sub-Saharan Africa, which was fun. I stayed there for three and a half years. And then after that, I became a real, real, what they call a serial entrepreneur. I was investing in technology startups all along. And people always speak about the one that shines the brightest, right? There's, there's quite a few in that dispensation that I was involved in, but Thumbs Up was an exciting one because that's one that we built here locally. Um, little thing that just plugged into a phone that converted to a card acceptance device. But the origin of that startup um, is something that has always stuck with me, is that we started that company not because we wanted to make a payment device. 
we started that company not because we wanted to conquer a particular market share. We started that company because I met someone that lost a baby because she couldn't make a payment. You know, and I, was, I just decided that I wanted to do something about that. And that was the origin. That conviction led to a seven and a half, seven and a half year odd um, uh, career starting comes up, uh, you know, raising venture capital, taking it global. Uh, Visa Inc. took an equity stake in the company and that gave us further momentum to take it even further. And uh, the basis of that entire company was a conviction. And then after that, I kind of went into semi-retirement and I kept on building a couple of startups. I exited two since then. And uh, yeah, I'm still, I feel I'm still on the retirement bench right now. Yet I'm doing quite a few other things. I'm on the board of the CSIR, no longer on the board of Advertech. And the CSIR board is really, really interesting because there I get to meet people that are way, way smarter than I am. And uh, that's really, really fun. Yeah, just for people on the call who don't know what the CSIR is, I think this is one of South Africa's hidden gems, perhaps. What is it? Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's where all research investment happens in South Africa. It's where all our scientists sit. Right? It's the place where um, government raises capital in partnership with private sector and intellectual property is built that is, you know, world first. Lots of invention happens there. It is a hidden gem. And one of my mandates as being part of the board there is to ensure that I highlight it because there's so many opportunities for the CSR to partner with private institutions out there. The capacity that they have, the, the human capital that they have, that you can interlock with to do your research and development. I mean, it's there. Uh, they own many assets that are world first assets. They, they, they invent things that are that are things we've never seen before. And just the, the, the team, that team is is one of the most incredible coagulations of human capital that I've seen in our country. I mean, the scientists. Uh, the, the doctors in there and uh yeah it's just such a privilege being part of that team well we might we might come back to that but um okay. let's go back to the core purpose of this particular call and um i've kind of given the game away there by mentioning purpose but let's start with uh, this concept of unicorns because that was in the title how would you define a unicorn you know, people have a monetary view of a unicorn right so it's a business that reaches kind of a, a billion a billion dollars net asset value, capital value, and you know that's defined as a unicorn. Um, that is true from a pure monetary sense. But if you take a look at the big, big companies that we have today, we now have these trillion-dollar companies, like multi-trillion-dollar companies. I think in the next decade, this particularly this decade, I think we'll see our first trillionaire. And I think it will be a trillionaire that's hooked up to AI. You know, whoever's going to get the, the AI that everyone's going to be using, that person that invents that, that person that sort of monetizes that, I think that's going to be our first trillionaire. And I think we'll see it in this decade. I think if you take a look at those businesses and who they are, I mean, the S&P 500, if you carved it up, it's quite profound. Five companies, if you combine the net asset value, outstrip the entire S&P 500. Like all the other businesses, net asset values combined, you know, five companies equal 50% of that, of that market. And that's quite profound. And those are the big, big companies. But if you take a look at who they are, um, they are companies that, our ecosystems. I mean, if you take a look at Amazon, right? Uh, if you took all our stuff out of AWS, what would AWS be? Which is actually their profit driver. If you took all the stuff off the internet that we put up, what would Google be? If you took all our stuff out of Facebook, what would Facebook be? If you took all our stuff out of YouTube, what would YouTube be? Keep going. You know, or take all our tweets out of Twitter, what would Twitter be? These are companies that are co-creative organizations you know these are organizations that allow for human participation they create architectures for us to engage and express our humanity in ways that is very profound that we we're still getting used to and i think if you define who they are you'll see that it's businesses that derive less value than they create so if you ask me what's a unicorn today the way you get to unicorn status if you look at the, the transversal character that all these companies have is one profound thing that they derive less value than they create. All the companies in AWS combined in Amazon's web services has valued more than Amazon. All the apps in the app store that Apple has is more valuable than Apple. If you keep going, all the companies that create content on the internet combined has a greater value than Google. So it's, we, what we find is it's, it's two attributes. Number one, these are architectures of participation. Number two, it's, these companies derive less value than they establish. And I think that's what a lot of businesses need to think about in this technological age that we, we, we keep accelerating into is, is are you deriving less value than you're creating? And, and that's an important question because, you know, we are subject to so many ills at the moment. As much as we're accelerating, we're also accelerating inequality. We're accelerating a lot of things. And I think a lot of businesses have to think about that. Are they extractive? 
or, or is there some symbiosis with its community, with its ecosystem that it lives within? And I think if you take a look at the most valuable companies in the world, that's what's very interesting about these new ones, like the Apples, the Googles, or the Alphabets, the, the, the Facebooks, et cetera. They are businesses that derive less value than they create. And that's what we found. What's, what's actually driven that change? Because, you know, this term unicorn came up about, I don't know, decade, 20 years ago. I don't know when exactly, but it made a lot of sense because there weren't very many privately funded companies uh, that were worth a billion dollars or more. In fact, um, maybe two or three, you know, in, say, 2005. Now there's over 500 and we've got privately funded, you know, uh, and WeWork would be in that, obviously. We've got privately funded Decacorns and we've got privately funded Hectacorns. Hectacorns is 100 billion or more. Um, you might know, uh, say, TikTok, you know, ByteDance. That is yeah. a massive exponential growth in capital being allocated into private ventures. What, what do you think's led to this shift where they can be so valuable, if not so profitable? I think it's reach. I think when the internet started off in the late 1990s, um, you know, we started seeing that reach, but it was still the domain of the few. And, uh, you know, we saw the G8 countries all have broadband, you know, every most of the population had access and kind of the world had to catch up. And then we overestimated the impact of what this was all going to be. And then we underestimated the impact of what this was going to be in the long term. I mean, Mara's law, right? We always overestimate in the short term and we underestimate in the longer term. That And, and that's what we did with technology in the night. And I think what we promised in the late 1990s, early 2000s is finally playing itself out a couple of decades later. And so we see hyperconnectivity. We see the notion of not, you know, we, we used to talk about being offline and online. You know, you struggle to be offline today. You know, getting offline is a, is a problem. Disconnecting is actually a challenge. You're actually paid to be disconnected, to go to a place where the, you disconnect. And I think the fabric, the underlying fabric of connectivity of all of us en masse, the majority of us now being connected, those numbers on the internet. We always talk about the cloud in the sky, but what's quite profound about this internet is what's happening on the edges of it. You know, not what's happening in the cloud, but it was, you know, it's almost not cloud in the sky, it's clouds in people's hands. You know, what we have in our hand now, these things are, you know, they, they, they're incredible. They're not phones anymore. These things, I call them sensory, real-time peripheral rendering engines. Right? They, are, they are ones. They give us access to disparate species of cognition. They give us the capability to do things that's unimagined. And I think the fabric has grown up. I think the reach that we've had, that we have now in terms of the human population, and if you take a look at the fabric of the internet and how it's grown up, these companies are leveraging this. And uh, we've never seen organizations capable of reaching mankind to this extent and, uh, and, and you know, working with this fabric and this architecture. And I think this leads to, to, to numbers that we're not really used to. I mean, remember when Facebook IPO'd? It crashed, right? Because yeah. the algorithms didn't understand you know, how do you deal with an organization that comes online that's profitable and it has almost two billion at the time, two billion customers? Like, it's just not, it can't be digested. And, and we saw Facebook kind of collapse down to I think it was 16 or, or $19 a share before it catapulted up again. So there was a time when the can market- you, didn't Can you just tell me, by the way, what you called that device again? I, I, I just want to, what did you call it? I'll give you two things. I call it a sensory, a peripheral sensory real-time rendering engine. I'm no, so happy what... that you're not in charge of brand and naming at Apple because uh, <laughs> <laughs> no one would have ever bought one. But anyway, let's, uh, let's, let's talk about this shift that you're talking about because uh, Ray Kurzweil, um, if you're on the call and you don't know him, senior engineer over at uh, Google, multi-millionaire, serial entrepreneur. Uh, you can find him at Singularity University and other really interesting places. He's come out and he said, you know, over the next, uh, this, this hundred years that we're facing now, you're going to see literally 10,000 years of progress just packaged into this generation that we're living in. He goes on and says some other crazy stuff. What's your thought about the next decade? Last decade was already quite exponential. Look at what's happened with the phone, 2008. And now look at what we're using with it, as you just said. What can we expect over the next decade? It's going to get faster. Um, yeah. I think it will it'll accelerate. I think we kind of see the shifts in the, I mean, I, I, technology, I always say this, you know, it's like when water falls into a valley, you know, I, I can't tell you exactly where it's going to land up, but I can tell you more or less its trajectory, right? It's downward. Um, it's got leanings, it's got attributes, and technology has, has leanings, it's got attributes, so we can kind of feel where we're going to go. And I think to understand where the shifts are going and to understand how fast they're going to be, we always underestimate them. Right? We first overestimate it, but then we kind of underestimate it in the long run. We always do that. But I think the next decade is going to be profound because I think the next decade will be very similar to when we discovered electricity. 
you know, when we discovered electricity, the first, uh, there's a book called uh, Empires of Light. It's a dissertation, and it just speaks about the first 40 to 50 years when we discovered electricity. You know, when we discovered it, we didn't know what to do with it. Um, you know, Tesla and, and uh, you know, the, the guys that actually gained access to this utility didn't really monetize. The first time monetization of electricity occurred is when hackers took it and rendered Tesla's art at the state fair. You paid a penny to go to the tent behind the tent. You know, uh, the guy with the nose ring and the funny ponytail and lots of tattoos let you in. And, and you went there and you saw Tesla's arc and your hair raised in your arms and you walked out and you were like, wow. It was magical. It was the domain of the few, right? Um, then it moved to the rich. And it moved from being mystical to being fashionable. And rich people slept with the lights on in downtime Manhattan. You know, they got all these hackers to make electricity in their basements. It was loud, smelly, people died pollution, noisy, et cetera. And um, that was the, the second step. So the first step was this mystical second step, the rich. The third step was when it became ubiquitous. That's when we created an electrical grid. So government stepped in. And three big things happened there in that third step is we, we kind of figured out how to build an electric cloud or a grid, a star topological network for distributing this utility over fast distance and step one. Step two was we created standards to interface with it, AC, DC, et cetera, right? the plugs in factories. Factories started staying on longer. And then the third thing happened was a permanent utilization that broadly made it, uh, you know, consumable uh, by the population. And suddenly electricity was everywhere, but nowhere. Suddenly, right? And then it had its impact. For the first 40 years, the Industrial Revolution wasn't influenced by electricity. And then suddenly when it was influenced, it was hyper acceleration, right? I mean, look at everything that came from the combustion engine. So as much as we electrified, we are now cognifying. And I think in this dispensation now, when we talk about fourth industrial revolution, all that, those are noisy things that we talk about. I always kind of chisel through the noise. The thing that really interests me is the artificial intelligence bit. And I think if you had to ask me the next decade, what's going to hyper-accelerate us, I don't think it will be connectivity. I think we kind of get into that last mile of connectivity. We need to connect the rural people. That's important. But in terms of where the economic hubs are in the world, in terms of the arterial veins, the, you know, our eastern and western seaboard, the internet has matured to a point where it can handle. I mean, we're all online now. Take a look at what happened with COVID. This hyper acceleration. So many of us doing exactly what we're doing at right now. I'm sitting in my gym and I'm talking to a couple hundred hundred people. Um, the internet has shown that it has the maturity and the fabric to grow up. I think what's interesting now is when we start looking at cognition. Just like we had electrification and its impact that it had in the industrial revolution and the acceleration that we saw there, I think we're going to see cognification. Uh, and cognification is going to be quite significant. I think it's going to be a rate of change and acceleration that we've never seen before. It's like, it's very simple, right? When you add the horse, it was all about the horsepower, right? And X amount of horses. And it was one horsepower. And Colin was the blacksmith that could make the best stuff. And yeah, he could breed the best horses. And then suddenly, you know, electrification, the combustion engine came along and we said, okay, you can sit on your bum and you've got access to 500 horses by doing nothing. Like, vroom, vroom, 500 horsepower in a car fast forward to today and it's not about that it's actually the 500 minds in the vehicle and when you start injecting cognition into physical things then it redefines industries then you've got the self-driving car and then what does that mean right and we and we, we kind of sit back and we start worrying about what impact this will have on on transportation broadly the amount of truck drivers um you know shelf checkout in a store you know if you take a look at the amount of jobs that's going to impact it's going to it starts creating very real questions and i think those questions are going to accelerate and the leaders of today really need to think about this very very carefully and preempt it very very quickly because let's dig, let's dig into that let's dig into that i mean before we started we were chatting about um ai superpowers a really great book which i recommend everyone um, should actually have a look yeah. at um where the prognosis isn't great for people actually in terms of their careers and in some really interesting professions. Are there any industries out there today? So basically for the corporate people listening in, are there any corporates out there that aren't going to have to radically change if they want to survive this AI revolution? So let's say I'm going to rephrase some of that, right? Because I think AI always, always speak, when we speak of AI, the questions tend to lean into the worry, the, the warning signs. And I, I, I think AI is the greatest gift since electrification. You know, uh, you know I, I think it's the greatest mechanism. And I think it's something that mankind should really revere. Because I do think it's an incredible gift. And I don't think AI by itself. I think the story of AI is human machines and biosis. I don't think, if you take a look at this, the book, uh, the superpower, AI superpowers book, 
that speaks very uh, linearly about GPUs and the, how much the United States is investing in AI and, and all of that. And it, it, takes, it takes also a look at China and the trillions of dollars that will go into AI. And, and, and that's okay. But I, but I think AI has another dimension that we need to be very cognizant of. And as leaders in businesses, we need to be careful. AI is not just, you know, I always say this. It's, if you take a look at Blue beating Kasparov in the corner there, that's an AI. If you took, do look at that corner and you see Watson beating um, a radiologist that's disseminating radiological information, um, that's an AI. But artificial intelligence should actually be defined as artificial intelligences. Because what's happening on the outside of corporates today is, is an explosion of disparate species of artificial intelligences. See, when we talk about intelligence, we always talk about it in this linear fashion. We say, you know, a squirrel has an IQ of X. Therefore, it's intelligence because it can find its nuts after many, many years of burying it somewhere. So it's got intelligence. Um, um, you know, a, a chimpanzee has got a, a, has got a better range of cognition. So it's got a better IQ. Then you get a guy like Stafford, like just very poor IQ, you know, dumb guy. That's and then we keep going all the way to Einstein and we say that's intelligence. But that's actually not intelligence. Uh, that's IQ. Intelligence is actually disparate natures and species of intelligence. You take a look at a corporation, you've got the HR department, the finance, the creatives, the engineers, and that diversity brings together a collective intelligence. And I think that's where we need to take a look at what AI's role is there, because I think it's, it's combinatorially innovative. It is when we take human species and we combine them to disparate species of these cognitions and we combine and then we have a net result of something that we didn't even imagine was possible before. So we need to be careful that, you know, when I have this device in my hand, this device gives me access to disparate species of cognition. It, and, but I participate in that network. Me plus this creates a, um, um, a derivative that is so much more powerful. It's like saying, give an example, like Uber. Uber is not a taxi company with an app. It's not, right? Uber is the personification of a business model um, on an architectural level of what businesses need to really focus on doing as their next dispensation. So we, we told businesses, open up, open up, right? Be like Google, be like Amazon, be like Facebook. Allow people in to innovate. That's okay. Becoming a platform was kind of the last decade story. The next decade story is creating algorithmic marketplaces. What do I mean by this? It's not just having a big data lake in the sky and having people create with you and you have open interfaces. We now need to start feeding real-time information loops into our big data lakes to create organizations that deliver services that were previously unimaginable. So example, Uber, ability to catch a cab within three minutes in every major city in the world. That is delivered not because of an app sitting on a big data lake. That is because you download the Uber app on your peripheral device and you participate in the network, you are part of the node and your human intelligence combined with your space, geospatial awareness, et cetera, you participate, your real-time data federation into the Uber ecosystem allows it to distribute drivers. So when you, example, sometimes when you ask for an Uber, I don't even see it, it's like it's more expensive, right? It says surge pricing. The reason it's more expensive is because the AIs in the sky say, hey, wait a minute, relative to what we've seen on density of people in this area and cabs or drivers in this area, it's really low. So I'm gonna do what? I'm gonna increase the surge. I'm gonna create this like honeybee effect. The drivers are prompted to move closer into that particular proximity. And as they move closer, the surge pricing settles again. That is a, not a big data network. That is not a platform business. That is an algorithmic marketplace. That is me so as a custodian so participating. Let's draw that back. Let's draw that back then. Let's call it this algorithmic marketplace, which is consisting of thousands of variants of different types of currently narrow AI. And we'll see how we go into generic and general AI in the future. But we've got this incredible push, right? Yeah. Startups and well-funded startups that are driving to go and solve something, as you said, where the benefits for the population is more than the benefits of the company, look ideally placed to go and utilize these types of technologies. Corporates look like tankers, you know, plowing on, hoping this doesn't happen and struggling to make the changes that the startups are able to do because they've got no legacy, there's no technical debt. 
Are you in a kind of agreement with that uh, that theme that I'm highlighting there? And, and if you are, what can corporates actually do to try to make the shifts that they're going to have to do? I would answer it in two ways. I think um, it's a very interesting question. And I get, this, I get asked this question a lot. When I walk into corporates, especially when you walk into the boardrooms or you go sit down with the CEO. So I, you know, what I do a lot now is do these Zoom sessions with CEO direct reports. And we kind of took, take a look at where the world's going. The, the last one I did a, not too long ago, a couple of weeks ago, a CEO brought me and said, it's five years from now, we've died. What killed us? Come and tell us. That was the brief. And it was quite fun. But in terms of what corporates need to do, I think there's a couple of things around innovation that we need to understand that. I love what Tim O'Reilly says. He says, true invention and innovation doesn't exist amongst business people or even entrepreneurs. It exists when people are having fun. Let me say that again. True invention and innovation doesn't exist amongst business people or even entrepreneurs. It exists when people are having fun. Usually when the entrepreneur like me shows up, the engineer that kind of figured something out has already started playing and rinketing, dinketing with it, right? Then I come along as an entrepreneur and I kind of accelerate that. But what I find is the greatest, I mean, look at all our industries, the aeronautical industry, you take a look at, you know, aviation industry, take a look at that. You know, the, the Wright brothers didn't want to sell aircraft. They didn't want to make planes to sell them. They didn't want to create an airline. They just wanted to fly. And, and, and I think the origin of the greatest industries that we see is, is people just having fun. Now, if we get, if, if that's the premise of where true invention and innovation lives, a big question that corporations need to ask themselves is how do I create areas where fun can happen, right? And fun is counterproductive. And fun is like, like so not what the CFO wants to hear, right? Because it's all about the P&L. But businesses now are forced to start really thinking about this. And where I saw this personified exponentially was when I worked at Google. I'll never forget going to Mountain View, California, in my first month that I was with Google, they flew us to uh, Dublin Island to get the financial side of things. But when I went to Mountain View, you know, what was quite profound is where I saw the 80-20 rule play out. Google had the 80-20 rule. 80% of the time, you did whatever the company required you from an agreed KPI set. 20% of the time, you did whatever you wanted, right? And in that 20% time, some of Google's greatest inventions and tools that we use today were actually invented. You know, Gmail was invented and made in 20% time wasn't made in the 80% time. And I saw the culture that's required to implement this, right? And, and the type of workforce that you need to employ to do this. So I don't just think this is a, a technological how do you do that? How do you, how do you do that though, Stafford? Because, you know, um, what, what I've learned so far is to go and help corporates to go and ride this wave of, of change that they need to. Firstly, they've got to call you, right? And then secondly, they've got to work out, and I see this as an outcome to create fun. But, but how do they do that? And I'm going to tighten the question because I want to put a poll up as well. How important is it to set a really clear, often altruistic purpose to drive that culture where you get that fun that you're talking about? I just launched the poll, but uh, what, what's your opinion on that? Well, it's as, it's as symmetrical as ensuring you can handle failure. And we always talk about embracing failure. We always say, like, you've got to respect failure. And at Google, I learned two things. Um, you know, identify it early and do it very quickly, right? So, so, and then it becomes data, not failure. And I think a lot of corporations need to start embedding that. And I'll never forget, there was a time that I was at Google where someone made the search spider kind of stop working for an extended period of time. Now, for a company that handles multi-billions, what, what they call... Um, this this uh, was one of the senior um, ladies at Google, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it's a very, she was a very senior lady. I mean, the story, people can go Google the story, but she, she actually tried something and it shut down the spider. It stopped. I'm, I'm paraphrasing it now, but it kind of stopped Google from working for a couple of minutes. Now, for a company that handles you know, billions of hits per second, you know, a couple of minutes is profoundly bad. And, uh, you know, I, I'll never forget it. We all saw it fired out of there, gone, et cetera. But what happened was, you know, Larry and Sergey hung over the wall and said, what were you trying to do? And if you hear this, if you go back and listen to the story, she thought she was going to get fired right away. She started backing, but Larry and Sergey sat down with her and said, what were you trying to do? And she said, what I was trying to do is make things get, go faster. And she unpacked it for them. And you know what? They rewarded her. And she was one of the most, like later on from a shareholding perspective, a shared dividends perspective, you know, she became quite wealthy. But what that did, when everyone in Google saw that failure was actually rewarded, provided that there was a, a clear objective and a purpose around it, um, that was profound. That reset the culture. And I think lots of businesses may have to have an example like that, where 
something big like that happens and you embrace it, right? Because at the end of the day, you're going after specific things. And, and the key at Google was, you know, Google had like four or five things. I'll never forget this. Google, whatever Google innovated, I don't know why I'm speaking about Google so much. It's been so many moons ago. But um, when Google innovated, I'll never forget this. Um, I worked for Mohammed Gordat, Mo Gordat. He went on to become Google, the head of Google X, and he wrote a book about happiness, and you can Google him. I'll never forget him and Nakesh Aurora. Um, we sat down, and I went with this idea to them. And they, they wrote four things on the board, and I had to answer it for them. I'll never forget it. Right? Nakesh went on to become a, the head of SoftBank, and then later on, he's moved on now. But these were titans of industry. So I went there with my great ideas around how we should do this. And this was the market share. This is the idea. This is how we could innovate. And if we did this, we could, you know, we could create a multi-billion dollar business. You know, what was quite profound is having leadership that had a true filter for this innovation. And they asked me four or five questions. First question was, does it make it faster? Speed. The second question was, does it make it simpler? Simplicity. The third question was, does it make it more relevant? Relevancy. Fourth question was, does it increment verbosity? First question was, does it impact agility? And that was a filter, no matter. So, so even if you had a business idea that was a multi-billion dollar business opportunity, right? they would also always look at it through those lenses. And that was the filter. So you had to go up and go, because their rule was focus on the user and all else will follow. You know, and that was their rule. That was one of the top 10 Google rules. And, and it was filtered with those things, faster, simpler, more relevant, verbose, and agility. And if it kind of, if that was the objective, if that was what you were trying to get through, you'd get sponsorship. You'd get momentum behind the idea. You'd get buy-in and failure would be embraced. So I think it's not just about saying, hey, fail, fail, fail. I think corporates have governance. You know, corporates have structures. They've got shareholders. They've got stakeholders that they're accountable for. But it starts at the very, very top. I spoke to an insurance company a few months ago uh, during lockdown. And I told the CEO in front of his direct reports, it, stops, it starts with you and it ends with you. Uh, it, it actually, so, so true, true leadership is now required. But I'm, I'm almost talking about the underlying mechanisms. I think what's very, very important from an overall purpose perspective is, is truly defining, you know, what are we trying to do? And when we keep telling purpose, uh, talking about purpose so much, innovation interlocked with purpose is, is, is like a combined driver. That, that, because if you're just innovating for innovation's sake, you're not going to hire right. And that's another aspect, right? How, are, you, are you hiring right? Do you have the right team? So, and, Stafford, and let's share the results and, and let's see. Um, let's just stay on that purpose trend there because I think – can you see that? Yeah. Yeah, 90%. So we've, we've, got, we've got massive strong support for, um, you know, what you're saying there. I mean, we, we have to have failure. You've got to have fun. You've got to have experimentation. If you can build that around a purpose, you've got a massive advantage. Startups have known this forever. Unicorns have known this forever. It's driving them. You saw this, and we'll ask about that in a minute at WeWork. My question to you is, why is it so hard for corporates to get this and start introducing it in the board and the executive level yeah. where, yes, we've got to have profit and dividend, but we've got to build around a purpose and try to do good for our customers? I'm going to answer by, by asking a rhetorical question. And I, I ask this question to a lot of the MBA students when I lecture at some of the universities. I ask this question, what killed Kodak? Right. Kodak was an organization that declared bankruptcy a few years ago, right? If you take a look at that organization, from an intellectual property perspective, I mean, their patent arsenal almost matched IBM's. From a distribution network perspective, they had it all, a global distribution network. They had very enticing products. They had the first digital camera. Um, they were a business that could make a yellow camera go deeper underwater and flash brighter. So what killed Kodak? And I love when I ask this question to students, they always come back with either a piece of technology or a piece of that, and we kind of get the normal, the answers. I posit to say that Kodak focused so much on core strength. Kodak focused so much on hiring the best of the best. So if you were an optical engineer, Kodak would you know, really entice you to come and work there. Kodak was a business that looked at pure, hard, organic strength. What Kodak didn't realize is what was happening on the outside of its firewall. On the outside of its firewall, it was seeing an emergence of, at the time, technology that it laughed at. It looked at the first phones and said, oh my, a one megapixel phone, look at the pixelation, crap, we've got the best, etc." What they didn't realize was the following, Colin. They didn't realize that when I take a picture of Colin, 
and I put it on a social media stream, when someone clicks the like button, I don't care about the pixelation. I don't care. You know why? Because when, you, when, when someone clicks the like button, come on, Colin, you know how you feel, right? So when you post a tweet and someone retweets your tweet or you put a, something on Facebook of your kid and someone clicks the like button or some, you go to Instagram and your picture gets hearted, the reason people are doing that and en masse, the majority of internet activity in the world is what? Giving, not taking. I, Let me I say find that again. those platforms very depressing now that you've said that. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, so, so, so just think about this. The majority of the activity on the internet is giving, not taking. So we yeah. talk about clouds in the sky, but it's actually clouds in people's hands. People are waking up and the first thing they look at is their, their glowing rectangles, right? The last thing they look at is that device. It's, it's, it's not the first thing you touch in the morning. It's not your spouse. You lean over and you take your glowing rectangle and you catch up. It's, we are generating so much. Why? And what is that content? And why is social media so, 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 so popular? Why are we seeing so much data being federated, created and federated into the cloud from the edges of the network? This, we need to understand why. Kodak didn't get this. They were laughing at the phones. They were laughing at the pixelation of the pictures being posted. What they didn't realize is when Colin gets the like button clicked, something happens inside of Colin. You know what happens inside of Colin? Colin feels good. Because you know why? Because on a so again, substrate so level... Why, why are corporate CEOs and boards not realizing this and driving yeah, for that? Yeah, so I'm getting to that, right? So here's the answer. The answer is the following. That we are focusing so much on hard power and technology, we're not focusing enough on humanity. Kodak died because they were focusing on a poor capability with deep organic muscle. What they didn't realize on the outside of their business was people, humanity, augmented with technology experiencing a derivative of the services that they were supposed to provide that spoke to our humanity. The fact that I can put a picture up on Facebook and get it clicked speaks to three things. This is what social media is all about. And every business needs to realize this today. Sustainability comes from what I'm about to explain. is not ex understanding technology better, but comprehending humanity more. Mm -hmm. That is where sustainability comes from in a business today. It's not a technological story. It's not about a te technology story. It's about a human story. It's, this is about humanity. And so what do I mean by that? What I mean well, by I, that is... Can I ask you a question to make it even more real? Yeah. Rex have got to understand it's about driving, you know, uh, improving the lives of humanity, paraphrasing what you said. Okay? This sounds like... Yeah, yeah, go I'm just going to say, this sounds like the sort of stuff that many people would go, this is, this is fluffy cloud type stuff. Have you experienced what it's like working in an organization where they're driving to improve humanity and you've seen what happens on the back of it? Let me answer it this way. Every business needs to understand, irrespective of the challenges of what I'm about to describe, this is fundamental right now. This is not fluff. This is fundamental. You need to understand humanity more than you understand technology. Right, humanity killed Kodak. Why? Because Kodak didn't realize that Colin is made up of three things. Let me tell you what humanity is made up of. It's very simple. And unfortunately, this is not MBA deep stuff, right? This is not algorithmically deep techie stuff. And it's a technologist articulating this to you. But all the technological tools out there are unleashing human expression. So you as a business need to ask yourselves, are you unlocking human expression? Are you allowing architectures for human expression to be unlocked within the context of your business services. Why is this so important today? Is this fluff? Absolutely not. Because there are three fundamental things that drives your customer base. Three, not your product. I'll tell you what drives your customer base on a fundamental level. Every morning when Colin wakes up, Colin wants one of these three things or a combination or all of them. Colin wants to feel a part of something. Okay. Community. The second thing that Colin wants is Colin wants recognition, attribution. The third thing that Colin wants his legacy is to never be forgotten. The difference between Colin and the man that walked into a cave, put clay in his mouth, put his hand against the cave wall and spat, is no different. The difference is you don't have a cave wall, you have a digital wall. And now it's global, it's not physical. But innately, you are exactly the same. Instinctively, as human beings, we want services that allow us to immerse ourselves within them so we can express our humanity, so we can see 
that we are part of something. So we can see that we are recognized and we can get the notion that we are leaving a trail, leaving a legacy. This is what social media is all about. This is why the most valuable companies in the world today are so valuable. Going full circle to your original question about unicorns. What is Amazon allowing me to do? It's allowing me to go in. What is Google allowing me to do? What is Facebook? What is Twitter? What is Keep Going? These are companies that are combinatorially allowing for human expression to accentuate itself within its fabric. Now, you as a business, whether you're a bank, whether you're an insurance company, whether you're in the manufacturing industry, whether you are in the technology industry, the driver today is, is humanity. And leaders that understand this can find their purpose. So when you start defining the purpose of your organization, like where do you start, right? For me, I always, when I get together with leaders in a room, I start with the defining of what, is, what, is, what makes up a human. And then we translate that to what makes up their constituency, their customers. And then we ask ourselves the questions, are we allowing our customers, those three attributes, how are we allowing our services to express that, to accelerate that, to add value to that? And I think from that comes the true definition of what a business purpose is. But at the end of the day, we are in a technological age. Technology is so transversal, it's everywhere. But as much as it is about technology, it's never been more so about humanity. And your leadership needs to understand this, that it's not fluff. This is, now, I've got a, there's is, a question from Suman. I, I want to ask some of the uh, questions from the, the listeners. Um, I'm, I'm tweaking it slightly. I hope you don't mind, Suman, but I think you'll, you'll see where I'm going. He says the three things that humanity is looking for that you mentioned, how do we make an assessment measure? Re rephrasing it slightly, can we really measure this impact of making people feel loved making people feel recognized, making people feel like they have legacy and turn it into, and you'll know this term from Google, an OKR framework and objectives and key results where you can motivate people to try to make that the goal as a purpose as opposed to dividend and short-term profits. So, so I come from an innovation angle, right? I'm not, I don't come from redefining a core business's core attributes. You know, I, what I tend to find is where I engage with businesses is when they're trying to take their, either their services to the next level or they want to augment it with a whole new range of, of ideas. And, and when you take those steps, there, you know, there are no real measurings there in the beginning, right? There, there's, broad, there's broad targets that we're trying to achieve, right? The first step may be, is it technologically possible, right? Can we make this? And then we take a look at adoption, you know, how many people are adopting this? Then we kind of take a look at, um, you know, uh, uh, feedback. How are we creating it? Let, let me put it this way. Businesses, uh, and this is going to be a round circle, and allow me just to go in the circle for a second. Back to AI. Artificial intelligence is the superpower, right? It, it, is, it is incredible. And, and unfortunately, we have leaders that have fitness functions that when you combine them with the superpower, creates dystopian outcomes, right? It just does. Uh, leaders today are incentivized to do more with less. So if we talk about how do we, how do we measure these things, let me, let's, take, let's take a look at how we measure things today. Milton Friedman came along in the 1970s and he said, early 70s, he said, the sole responsibility of a corporation is to derive value for its shareholders. Right? That was, a, that, was, that was profound at the time, very right at the time. But right now, that fitness function combined with the superpowers of artificial intelligences will have dystopian outcomes. And we're starting to see it. We're starting to see businesses doing more with less humanity, right? So, so operating margin. So can I get more productivity out? And can I increase the bottom line? And can I automate the hell out of it? And, and that means less, less and less human engagement. This is not sustainable. We cannot think this way. We cannot think about introducing tools to disintermediate humanity. What we need to think about is, yes, automation, and efficiency, but we need to think about how can we create this human machine symbiosis to deliver services that were previously unimaginable. So example, when we put ATM into banking, the teller lost their jobs, right? So the broad majority of tellers that shoved paper through thick glass panes weren't doing that anymore, but we didn't lay them off. We gave them a computer, we gave them a mouse, a keyboard, we connected them to a mainframe or an AS400, a middle tier piece of software. And suddenly the financial services industry increased its portfolio of services. And I think as businesses, when we start looking at these measuring sticks around how do we measure these things, I think we start off and we need to be careful that those measuring sticks are not our old industrial revolution measuring sticks, because you can, today you can, you can actually do more with less. The question is, 
can you also do more of what was previously impossible? That's the promise. That's that's the attitude that leadership should go down. Now, this more. What, what sort of measuring possible. sticks do you think we should put in, Stafford? Do you think, for example, SDG, you know, so uh, sustainable development goals should become bigger measuring sticks? Uh, what what can we do to break this issue where just focusing on the the shareholder, asset manager, and pension fund is challenged, so that incumbents can start to go and do the things that you're suggesting they should be doing? I think, again, it comes down to leadership. I mean, you've got to engage and round robin your stakeholders extensively. It is a journey. You don't leave this webinar and you go off with a magic wand and boom, you go innovate, right? Or you introduce these new fad ideas. You don't do it that way. It requires leadership to truly understand it on an authentic leadership level, right? This is not a practice. This is not something that you learn. This requires very deep authenticity. And I think once you have an authentic conviction associated with it, um, as a leader, your responsibility is to go off and, and, and roadshow this, right? Because you're not going to have a, a lot of fundamentals. You may not have a lot of measuring sticks. You're going to be asking for budget. You're going to be asking to do things that are out of the norm. And, and, and for a period of time, you're going you're gonna to need some rope. And the business is going to have to give you that. And the stakeholders have to be brought along. So from a, a pure leadership perspective, it starts with authentically defining that you know, with your core team and then round robining that within the business and then, and then unleashing that. Because in the beginning, there will be broad yardsticks and kind of milestones on a roadmap, but you're not going to have kind of a PL view on it, right? You're not going to have, if we put this in, here's what we're going to get out. You may fail and that failure gives you data and that data you could kind of re-digest and assimilate into your organization and that could have a broader impact. So it's, it's very difficult. If you had to ask me something about someone specific, Example, I, I'll give you an example, the healthcare industry. I sat down with the CEO of the healthcare industry a few weeks ago with these direct reports. And the mandate was, it is, um, you know, five years from now, we've died, what killed us? And I told them, what's going to kill you isn't, um, you know, the other health insurance company on the other side of the road. It's, it's me. And they kind of sat back and they didn't understand what I was saying. And I said, you know, today in healthcare, one, you know, 1% of the world's healthcare, this is a World um, Health Organization stat. One percent of healthcare is, at, is, is administered for, for for treatment, right? No, no. So one percent is diagnosis. Ninety-nine percent is treatment. We're swapping that over to ninety-nine-one, where ninety-nine percent is going to be diagnosis and one percent is going to be treatment, right? And when that eclipse happens in the healthcare industry, you know, where do they fit? Because now I get all the power. It means we don't live in a world where we got many more doctors, we may have many specialists, but broadly speaking, we'll have nurses with a two-year diploma walking around with disparate species of AIs augmenting them, able to deliver healthcare services on such a sniper-driven way because it will be data-driven. Why? Because today I have a Garmin watch, you've got an Apple watch, our phones, we're creating these deep biological rich information shadows. You know, and if you take a look at the power, the power is coming closer and closer to the edge of the network where I'll be, my healthcare will be data driven, not just behavioral driven. And that data, I'll own that data. And AIs will disseminate that data on my behalf and I'll have control. And then that eclipses healthcare. So if you take a look at that approach, when you agree that broadly your industry could be eclipsed in this particular way, then you kind of take a step back and you start defining, okay, what do we need to innovate relative to that? How do we need to metamorphosize? Kind of authentically get that, hold the conviction around that, roadshow that, get the stakeholders involved and everyone involved because you can't just innovate for innovation's sake, right? There's got to be a broad current in the water that drives the boat in a particular direction. So defining that, and I think that's quite difficult and it takes, takes a lot. And that's the thing that in my individual capacity, I'm doing more of than I've ever done before. So as much as I'm kind of retired, I find myself with the CXO level folks more talking about kind of what this next decade holds because they are petrified because the consumer has changed. Well, we talk about mass digitization and the acceleration of that. Here's a, an Okta study, right? I can share the Okta study with the audience. If I, I'll share the link with you, but it's the Okta study that spoke about remote work. In Europe, in the first six months of lockdown, 55% of the people that had to work from home had never worked from home ever before in Europe in the top five economies. Spain, Italy, you know, the UK and uh, Germany and France. Those people didn't have broadband at home. They didn't have a laptop at home. They, and of the 55%, more than 90% of them had never put their credit cards into an internet site. We've seen 
such massive digitization in the human populace right now, silently, en masse. And that's changed the consumer. I think the opportunity for businesses right now is to harness that latent human potential on the outside of their business. Don't focus on organic capability. Focus on creating architectures where innovation cascades into your business non-organically. So it's not even built by you, not made by you, but it's made on you and with you. It's not me, 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 me anymore, right? It's we, 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 because the consumer is so powerful on the outside. And I love what Bill Joy says. He says, no matter who you are, no matter what you make, there's always smarter people on the outside of your organization than on the inside of your organization. And I think today, the ability to harness that latent human capital on the outside should be a, a, a significant driver um, when you're innovating. Don't innovate for innovation's sake. Don't put a bunch of your CIO and a bunch of developers in a room and go innovate. That's not it, right? It's about creating this ability to have it cascade into your business. And this is, what's this gonna is be, difficult. Stop, and what's going to be the trigger for these leaders? Uh, well, two, you don't have to answer the first one. Do you know any of these mystical leaders that you've just described in the corporate incumbent world? Even yeah, harder, do you know any I of these I'm, mystical leaders who've gone and you know pivoted from we're driving for profit and we're now going to go and start having this yeah. a lot more altruistic drive yeah. in what we're doing? There's loads of them around yeah. driving unicorns and startups. Do they really yeah, so exist you, in the listed world? Yes, absolutely they exist. I mean, I'll give you an example. I'm going to name their names. So maybe I shouldn't, but I will. Um, the leaders at Discam. You know, I, I've created a startup where we wanted to put AI onto retail shops. Right. I went to the leaders at Discam. I, I knew them. And um, you know what they did? They thought I was speaking a language they didn't understand. But you know what they did? They said, OK, we're going to open up our store network. We're going to allow you in. Go. Go do it. Here's the broad parameters around governance and security and et cetera, et cetera. But go ahead and innovate. They allowed a third party on the outside to come into the organization to invent and innovate in their stores. And what they did was they brought a team along to look over our shoulders continuously to report back on the data set. And we innovated some world firsts there by doing that. Now, I'm not going to okay, speak but about that, exactly but, it, but this is cheating. This is cheating. Picking something in the medical sector. We're, we're not allowed to do that now because okay. they're... They okay, are, they are the obviously sector. automatically somewhat altruistic. You know, let's <laughs> choose someone bank. that's actually just it's offering bank. a normal product or service. Okay, a bank. Let's take a bank, Go on. right? Go on. Yeah, a bank. Yeah, I did the payment pebble. I mean, when I walked into APSA, um, you know, there was one of the businesses at the time when we walked into it was arguably the least innovative bank in South Africa, right? And when I walked into, into there, we met with Maria Ramos. We met with the leadership in that bank. Of, of, you know, there's Willy van Sale, there's Ari Reitenbach. And we Colorado sat down Washington. with them. Yeah, yeah, all of those folks, you know what they did? They looked at us. They found us fascinating. They found us dangerous. They found us very scary. One of the things that they did do, they, they walked away and said, we're going to allow this to happen. And you know what they created? They created the DMZ. They created this demilitarized zone for the crazy people like me to go ahead. They put some money into it. They said, every buck that you put in, we'll put a buck in. Let's see where this goes. We'll open up our customer base and on and on and on. And arguably, the payment pebble emerged from that. Arguably, Yoko and all the guys that you see today that are in this you know, next generation of these services emerged from that. So... They do exist. The, the question is, are there entrepreneurs out there that have common sense ideas? Um, I don't think it's the big businesses that are the challenges. I, go, I question whether we have enough of the entrepreneurs out there able to articulate a value proposition to a business um, passionately and authentically for them to open the doors. And let me tell you what opened the doors. If you're an entrepreneur and you're listening to this, I'll tell you what opened the doors at APSA. What opened the doors at APSA wasn't that I stood there with a little payment pebble and the device, and I went, whoa, aren't, you know, I didn't fascinate them with that. You know what fascinated them, what fascinated them was the origin of the company. I told them that I started the company because when payments fail, people die. That was my opening line to APSA when I walked in, when I, when I met all the leadership, the CEO, et cetera. I, my first slide was, when payments fail, people die. I took them very back to the roots of what they were. And I said, I'm here because of this lady. She lost a baby and she couldn't make a payment and she lost the child. And I took them through that story. And you know what they did? They bought into that conviction. They bought into that purpose. And together, when we had that joint purpose together, you know, the doors flung open and suddenly everyone wanted to work with us. And that was a B2B model of innovating, but it is possible. I don't think the question is, 
one-sided. You know, are there leaders out there? I think they are. I think people, you know, look, looking to the banking industry, the manufacturing industry, the keep going, you will find leaders with their doors more open now than ever before. But you've got to approach them in a particular way if you're an entrepreneur. And I think a B2B innovation cycle is, is, uh, is a lot easier than a B2C one. Um, if you're going to do it here in South Africa, just because, I mean, they've got bucks, they've got a, a, a customer base, they've got a distribution network, there's an opportunity to go innovate there. So I think it's more the question about the innovator than it is about, you know, the incumbent. So I'm 100% hoping you're right. Intuitively, I believe in people and I, I believe that most people in leadership positions want to do what you've just described. Structurally, I think it's incredibly difficult for them to go and do what you're suggesting. Have you got any um, thoughts on that? And while you're doing that, I'm going to bring Marius back in. Yeah, I think, I think my thoughts on that is, I think it's never been easier. Um, I think the boardrooms have never been more open. I, I've sat on the board of Advertech. Um, I'm on the board of the CSIR. I, I get board invites all the time. I turn them down now because I'm, just, I'm, just too, I'm not really that interested in, in serving on more and more boards. I think I've done my time almost seven and a half years at Advertech. You know, I'm a couple of years at the CSIR. Um, you're seeing boards opening up their doors to have more and more people like me on it. And I encourage boards to do this. And I'm seeing this happening. The changes, is it there today yet? No, but I'm seeing more technology-oriented, innovation-oriented competencies and capacities on boards now. And boards are, if you take a look at the hiring out there, broadly speaking, boards are looking for people that have a technology bent, that, that have proven innovation track records. And they're bringing them on board um, to, to kind of cross-pollinate. And I think, that is happening, and I encourage sports to do more and more of that, get more and more. I think also the establishment, I've seen two in South Africa, I'm not going to mention it, the establishment of two shadow boards, where you've got people in the organization that are not part of the board, but um, they're younger, they have a clear mandate, they have in their particular areas as much authority as the board, um, but they don't really have the same governance king requirements of a board, and, and that is a great Kind of bridge between where the organization is, where the organization on an 80,000 foot level needs to be, and what it could do from an innovation perspective. Shadow boards are another way of doing this. And I'm seeing these, these machinations personifying themselves around this. So I, I think what you posited there, I think five years ago, um, maybe even two years ago, you're absolutely right. A lot of inertia, lots of worry, lots of concern. But I think that COVID has changed everything. I think uh, mass digitization. I think if you take a look at where businesses are in terms of reshaping themselves and understanding their consumer base has completely changed. And, and what do we do now? The fact that technology is front and center, it's no longer the domain of the few, it's everywhere. You know, and when it's everywhere, it's nowhere. Now, what do you do? A lot of people are looking at the consequences of the proliferation of technology versus just technology itself. And I, so I, I think the ecosystem is changing. And I think people like myself, the innovators, the inventors, the entrepreneurs, the doors have never been wider uh, to, to pass through. The, the question is, though, you know, what are you going to say when you get through those, those open doors? But uh, if you are a leader in, in businesses, I do think you, you, know, you kind of start at the board level. You take a look at some things like shadow boards um, and, and you start creating these areas where innovation can occur. But again, it comes back to purpose and, and diversity. Please, 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 diversity. Because what a lot of organizations do, and I, I must be honest, purpose without diversity is anemic. It's not sustainable. You've got to have diversity. Now, I don't know how many times I've had to cut you off. I, I feel quite emotionally drained every time we go and talk with each other. Let me just hand over to uh, Marius because he needs to go and close it out. And then I'll just tell you why I played that piece of music. I think you understand when uh, we get to that point, Marius. Well, uh, yeah, Stafford, I mean, I, I really had fun and I'm trying to connect the dots, how you started with everything that you taught us in the short period of time about, I love the architecture piece made on you and not by you, uh, your humanity about legacy recognition and a belonging, uh, the, the algorithmic uh, components that you dis discussed about the fabric of connectivities. Uh, my question to you, which you don't have to answer just because we're out of time, would have been to say, do you think that listed corporate entities have the ability uh, to germinate unicorns and, and don't worry about that now. I think the segue that I will use just because uh, Colin took all, all the time is that uh, your comment about boards is relevant because next week we've got Professor Shirley Zinn talking about uh, do boards need a new purpose? So so that's a great segue to next week. And then it's important, Stafford, that I just thank 
uh, all the clients um, that we that we had joining us today. I, I, I won't be able to mention all of them, but Saint Cobain, RCI Foods, um, Absa. You were talking about Absa. Uh, you know, Billy and the guys, Digital Everywhere, Roll, Love Life, etc. And then probably my closing comment to you, seeing that you quoted so many books, is Scott Galloway said that you must uh, follow your uh, your talents and and uh, not your passion. And I, I won't to get Colin to write to him to say, I just spent an hour with somebody where I can't differentiate the difference between talent and, and passion. So yeah, thanks very much for that time. And we look forward to the rest of the series next week. Uh